0: Hello. Good morning, everyone. I um, hope you're all doing great today. Today, uh, your favorite pastor is taking a week off, so I am, I'm in his place today. So, uh, with that being said, I have the privilege of walking you guys through today maybe uh, one of the, the most famous passages that has um, ever been written in the Bible. And So, if you could turn with me to the Gospel of John, we're going to be in chapter 3 today. Uh, as we turn to the Gospel of John, I am going to start us out in verse 5, and we're going to read to verse 18. But the majority of our, our uh, discussion today is going to be on John 3.16. So, uh, if you could turn with me, that would be amazing. So, uh, to introduce this verse for you, John 3.16, it's been very famous for the past 2,000 years, and especially uh, in America in the past 200 years. Uh, you, you've I'm sure you've heard, there's some famous sermons on John 3.16. Uh, there's a famous evangelist uh, 150 years ago, D.L. Moody, was actually converted to the faith through this verse, and um, it's meant a lot for a lot of people. But today, the, reason, the main reason, I have two main reasons why this verse has been on my heart for you all. Um, the first is that I believe this verse is an amazing tool for preaching the gospel, I think that the way that this verse outlines the good news of Jesus Christ is extremely helpful, not just for you, but to tell to other people in your lives. And then I also believe that uh, it is a great time in culture uh, to revisit a verse like this. I'm sure, I don't know if you are used to it by now, but we as Christians, we keep having our favorite words from the Bible taken away from us. This happens all the time. I'm sure um, you'll see... Uh, someone, I don't know, campaigning for something or uh, signing a a petition, and they stand for things that maybe you're about. Maybe they'll say we stand for truth here. Uh, Maybe they say we stand for justice. And I want you guys to think about how sometimes these words that we love so dearly um, are being kind of twisted. So I think uh, this is a great time to revisit uh, John three sixteen uh, because today 's word is love, and again, uh, love is another one that 's being kind of taken from us and being twisted uh, not from uh, not talking about biblical love but talking about the love of the world and so my prayer for today is that we see love as God intended it, and that we see the message of john three hundred and sixteen as God intended it so Uh, If you're with me, please turn to John chapter 3. We are going to start in verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is it with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, and you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him... Should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world, that he might condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let's bow our heads and let's pray that we would understand this gospel message uh, from John 3. Dear Lord, I thank you for giving us the gospel of John that we could really understand the good news of you sending your son to the world as an example of your great love towards a world that hated you, Lord, towards a world that was heading for destruction. So I thank you so much, not only for, for the gospel of John, Lord, but for the gospel that we can be saved through a belief in your son, Lord. Uh, please help us understand John 3.16 uh, today. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we get started, I wanted to kind of give you a quick little uh, general summary of the first 21 verses of John uh, 3, just so you uh, can see where John 3.16 is fitting in and so you can make sure I'm not, I'm not preaching out of context here. So we start out... And we have a man named Nicodemus who comes to Jesus, and this man named Nicodemus, he was what's called a Pharisee. And the thing you need to know about the Pharisees that I think we often forget is that the Pharisees, although they were often opposed by Jesus, Jesus often says, you sinners, you have to understand that the Pharisees were the type of people that every one of us would have been impressed by religiously. You have to understand that they had all the marks of a good follower of Yahweh. And so because of that, not only is Nicodemus a Pharisee, but he seems to start off John 3 in a very humble way. And so he almost is your perfect candidate for someone who would be qualified to enter the kingdom of heaven, if that makes sense. Very Seems like a very good guy. And then uh, the second point is that Jesus brings up, how can someone enter the kingdom of God? How can someone get to heaven? It's a great question. It is what John 3 is all about. And the astounding answer that he gives here is that one must be born again. And we'll talk about that more in a second. And then it says that the son must be lifted up. And this is Jesus alluding to the fact that that Jesus was going to have to die on the cross. And then, this is where uh, John 3.15 and John 3.16 come into play, is that eternal life is available through belief in Jesus. And then it concludes by talking about how there is judgment for those who love the darkness and who do not believe. And then we end with John talking about how true practice of the light marks those who are in the light. And so we have John 3.16 right in the middle of this section, and I wanted to to read it for you, and I want to uh, highlight certain words in John 3.16 so that you might have a bit of clarity how to explain the gospel to someone uh, and how to understand it for yourself. So John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So today, uh, I have 3 life-changing truths from John 3:16 so that you might have a clear explanation of the gospel. I've outlined it like this. First, we have the selfless love of God. Secondly, we have the sacrifice of the son, and then third, we have it explained that salvation is through belief. And so I want to go through each of these sections uh, for you today. So the first one is the selfless love of God. We find that in the first section. It says, For God so loved the world. And this explains the selfless love of God in doing something. And the first word we have is for. And when we see, when we see a verse and it starts with for, we have to understand that, again, we are... Um, cutting off a sentence. We are finding a verse, and if you don't understand the previous part, then you're probably taking it in a way it's not to be meant to be, if that makes sense. And so when you see the word for, you have to understand uh, that he is just called Nicodemus, that he needs to be born again, okay? And this is, this is a term in Christianity, you're, uh, you're born again. And I want you to consider real quick The wildness of the statement that Jesus would say, you need to be born again. Imagine you have a car that you love so much. Imagine it has sentimental value to you and you love it so much, but it doesn't run well. And so you take it to the mechanic and you say, I would like you to look at my car and I would like you to fix my car, please. And let's just say the mechanic gets back to you and he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take your car and we are going to go out to the desert and we're going to blow it up. And then we will go to the dealership and buy you a new car. All right? Do you understand? Like, would you be offended by that? This is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, a person who seemingly has all the qualifications to enter the kingdom of God. And that is what this verse starts out as: is that we come to God. And we say, here's my life of works, here's my life of qualifications, here's everything I've ever done, what should I fix to be qualified for your kingdom? And God says, "Uh, everything. You need to be a completely new person. In order for you to enter the kingdom of God, you need to be completely not you, right? So that's where we start out today. Fun, right? Very kind of offensive, to be honest. Uh, and then we get to uh, John three fourteen, and uh, Jesus alludes. It says, "And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, for whoever believes in Him may have eternal life." And so. John now, or Jesus now, uses this illustration from Numbers, where there's a story where the serpent, there's a, a, a bronze serpent that is lifted up so that if an Israelite is bit by a snake, they may look at the serpent and may be physically healed. And so it's showing that just as there was physical healing in the Old Testament, the Son of Man, which is Jesus Christ, would have to die on the cross so that whoever believes might have eternal life. And we get to John 3.16, and I believe that this is starting a new section that is not said by Jesus. I think some of your Bibles may have it in red letters, and again, there's debate around this. I think that this is John the Apostle explaining the conversation that Jesus has just had, but I would like to point out for everyone that uh, it really does not matter In terms of how we see the Bible, there's a movement right now, and it's gone on for the last few years, called Red Letter Christianity. It's kind of a a movement in liberal Christianity where people will say, I will listen to the Bible if Jesus directly said it. But if one of the apostles said it, if Paul wrote it, I can question it. And uh, we believe that whether Jesus said this or whether John says this, it is absolutely perfect and absolutely uh, authoritative for us. So it says, for God so loved the world. Uh, This word so is, some people are taking this recently as instead of saying, for God so loved the world, people have made the argument that it should say, for God, in this way, loved the world. And there's a few Bible translations that'll actually take it that way. I believe the Holman Christian translation, as well as the Christian Standard Translation, which I do appreciate that, especially for our culture, who likes to say, uh, God loves me, so this will excuse any action I do, or kind of twist God's love. But I think the ESV here has it right. It says, for God so loved the world. And it's talking about, not only did God love the world in this way, but God loved it so much, or God loved it in such a surprising way there's a pretty similar construction we have here in Galatians 2.13. You don't have to turn there, but uh, it kind of shows some, it uses the exact same wording. And this is a section where there's a false teaching going around. It says this, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So the sentence here is trying to tell us that Barnabas, is surprisingly led astray because Barnabas was a very smart guy. Barnabas was generally wise. And so it's very surprising that Barnabas would be led astray by this. So he turned back to John 3.16. You kind of get what John 3.16 is saying. It's saying even more, this love for the world is incredibly surprising. It is mind-boggling to think that God would love something like the world and then love it in such an extent that he would give his only son. So when you read this first verse, if you explain this to someone and you don't highlight the fact that this is incredibly surprising, then I think we're missing the main point of this passage. So uh, it says, For God so loved the world. Interesting, I know I may be getting into the word love a little too much, but it's interesting how it's supposed to be talking about a past tense one-time event. And so the word love, God does love. I am not saying that God does not presently love, but this verse is specifically highlighting one event, one-time thing that he gave his only son. And so when you, when you show this verse, you have to say that this is specifically talking about God's love in sending the Son down to the earth for the world. Now, uh, there's sometimes this kind of complicated question. Is it okay to tell people that God loves the whole world? Or another way to say it, is it correct to say that God loves each and every person that has ever existed, Right? And the answer, I love how this verse explains it. The answer is yes and no. So kind of. I mean, Not a great, you know, not the most specific definition. But uh, the answer is that in this first part, absolutely yes, that God does love the world. The entire world. Now, I want you just to picture for a second um, how that makes sense, why that is confusing. It's because the world is so evil because the world is so against him. And when we talk about, is it okay to say that, that God loves every single person? The answer is yes. But in this verse, you have to define what that means, right? Here's the example for you. If, for example, if a boat is offered and given a life raft, is that a gift for the entire boat? Yes. But is that gift effective if you don't get in the life raft when the boat is sinking? The answer is no. And so you have to be honest with people. When, when you say God loves you, you must define the fact that God loves you in the sense that he has offered a chance to escape perishing. Okay? And we have, to, we have to specify that. So the first thing we see is the selfless and surprising love of God. How did it happen through the sacrifice of Jesus? It says this, he gave his one and only son, or he gave his only son. Again, this word he gave is, it's a one-time thing. It's a past event that happened once, and I want you just to consider as you think about God giving his only son, is there any more confusing idea in scripture? I think a lot of times people like to get caught up And certain things such as, for example, the Trinity, how we'll never be able to understand it, or maybe the problem of evil, or some other difficult questions of the Bible, I think as Christians we have to realize this is the most difficult question, is how in the world does it make sense that God would give His only Son to the world? Romans 5-7 states this, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life, I think we have to remember that sometimes we see ourselves as Christians and we are uh, we are special in God's eyes. We are I'm a Christian, so of course God loves me. But we have to remember that you, when God first loved you, were an enemy of God. This is why it's so surprising. God gave His only Son for a world that hated Him. So let's talk about the word "only Son." Um, we have, this is one that uh, is also debated a little bit. Some of you, if you're still holding to the King James Version, I believe it says only begotten. And ESV talks about the only son. And uh, the, the translation only son, I think is okay. I think it's very helpful if you say, um, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's pretty helpful to explain that to an unbeliever, a new believer, that Jesus was the only son of God the only one who could accomplish this. But I think if we don't translate it only begotten, then I think it actually it robs the text of a little bit of depth, right? And so actually, surprisingly, I'm, I like the King James Version for this. Not, not very often, but I do here, right? Uh, so a couple of things I want to point out for you is that the word only begotten, that was actually, this is the majority opinion for throughout the last 2,000 years. And the word only, translated from here is actually only become popular in the last 200 years, really. Which is kind of interesting, the timing, because 200 years ago, a lot of other things were starting up, such as Mormonism and the Jehovah's Witnesses. And so I think maybe us as Christians, we overcorrected in saying that the word only begotten is not right, because it is, again, twisted. It was happening back then, it's happening now. It was twisted to mean that Jesus was a created being, that Jesus was not eternally existing, right? But there's actually kind of an interesting uh, point that is being made by only begotten. If you um, go to Psalm chapter two, verse seven, you could turn there if you want, but um, it says this, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Kind of interesting because this verse is talking about Jesus. And clearly in Psalm 2, it's not Jesus being created, but it's Jesus. It's essentially a coronation. It's saying the new king is here. Very cool. Because in John chapter 3, I don't want to make you turn back there, but here we are. Turn back to John chapter 3. The central question is how do you get into the kingdom of God. And it says that he gave his only begotten son so that you could enter the kingdom of God. And I think that gives us a little bit of depth that I think if we go with the new translation, I, don't, I, I think we lose that a little bit. So uh, first one, uh, first point we have is the selfless love of God. We see the sacrifice of Jesus Christ And now we're looking at salvation through belief in Jesus. Essentially, how does this universal love translate towards you actually being saved? Let's read it. It says this For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The first section is whoever believes in him. This is, I, I want to highlight for you, when you preach the gospel, you have to show that this is something that includes everyone, but is very exclusive as well. Let me repeat that. It means it is we preach the gospel to everyone. Every single person, no matter how bad they are, no matter how much it seems like they reject Jesus, we preach the gospel to them because the gospel is for everyone. At the same time, when you preach the gospel, you have to realize that most are going to reject it and most are actually headed for perishing, as this talks about. So whoever believes in him, what does the word belief mean? I am going to spend some time on this word because it is so important that we understand what this word actually means and that we don't read our English idea of belief into This section that is so important because it tells us how to have eternal life. So there's, you have to ask yourself the question, what type of belief is this, right? Because if you don't have the right type of biblical belief, then you're not saved, okay? There's two views mainly that are on this about what type of belief it is in Christian circles. The first one, uh, this is called, the name for it is called the free grace view, Which, when you first hear the title, you're like, I love that. I love free grace. But I don't love this view. This is a very large percentage of Christians in the U.S., I think. A large percentage of summer camps you may go to, a large percentage of of preachers you may hear, will say that belief here is essentially intellectual agreement with the facts of the gospel. Meaning, and here's actually, here's, here's a very straightforward example they'll give. They'll ask you, do you believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States? And you'll say, yes, I believe that. And then they'll say, great. Now you understand how to accept the gospel. In a similar way, do you believe that Jesus died and rose again? And you'll say, like, if you think it through, they be like, yes, I do believe that. And they'll say, great, you are saved. And that belief scares me so much because I do not think that has a lot of biblical basis. And honestly, nothing bothers me more, especially being a youth pastor, than people who believe that they're saved but are not. That is the scariest thing, is that, that maybe a summer camp speaker will say, hey, all you have to do is believe that this is true and that you are going to heaven. And so you walk the rest of your life thinking, I am saved when you're not. And so uh, the view I take and I think it's the biblical view, is that this is repentant belief. Another way of saying this, and this is what I think that this verse says, is believing in rather than believing of, or believing that. Meaning, believing that is simply, you're believing the facts of the gospel. But believing in, and we'll get to, we'll get to this section here, but it involves allegiance to Jesus Christ. Uh, some people would call me a little bit, Uh, harsh for saying this, and they would say, where do you get this from the Bible? I would actually like you to uh, see a couple verses that I think have really convinced me strongly of this area. The first is in Mark 1, verse 15. This is Jesus preaching, and he says, "...the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel." So that's, I believe that's a bit of a weird way to say believe intellectually in the gospel and you will be saved. He says repent and believe in the gospel. And if you want to do a study about every time the gospel is preached and the word repentance is used, it's pretty often. It happens a lot. Jesus does it all the time. The apostles do it all the time. And uh, many people with uh, beliefs different than mine would say, oh, It's actually asking you to repent of your unbelief, which isn't really what repentance means. But uh, there's other verses that would strongly point us away from that. Here's another one. We have Acts 2, 38. This is Peter preaching. And Peter goes pretty extreme here. He says this. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, For the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is crazy what Peter does here. He doesn't even say the word believe. He says repent, and then he asks for one of the most extreme signs of repentance that you could ask for, right? If you're reading Acts 2, you remember what, what what is happening in Acts 2. This is very, very recently, Jesus had just been tortured on the cross. This is in everyone's mind. This sermon is happening in the very city that Jesus died. The very people who killed Jesus are still there. And Peter says, not only do I want you to repent, but I want you to publicly proclaim that you are with that guy in front of a ton of people in Jerusalem, but potentially those who had killed Jesus. So essentially, repent and put your life on the line for the sake of Jesus Christ." Like, that is more extreme than I've ever heard any evangelist speak. Um, I think Peter would probably be considered a bad preacher of the gospel by modern standards. But he's saying definitely more than repent of your unbelief. He's saying, change your allegiance. He's saying you need to see your sin, your old ways, and saying, I'm turning away from that and turning towards God. And then uh, this is another verse that kind of really... In my own mind, uh, I can't get around this verse. This is uh, James 2, 19. It says this, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And I thought about that for a second. I'm like, yes, demons intellectually believe that God is real. They intellectually believe every fact of the gospel. But demons do not have their allegiance with God. And demons are not going to heaven. And I can't get around this logic that, that James 2 presents for us in this way, right? So, uh, let's talk about uh, what a repentant faith means. So, in Scripture, again, repentance and belief are often used almost interchangeably. And they're used because they're talking about the same, uh, the same act of conversion, right? How you become a Christian. And essentially what it means is that while we are repenting of our own lives, we are turning towards... Jesus Christ in faith, right? And so we preach it as one event, just like we would say that as you leave your house, you are going to church. It's one event. And I think that when we preach the gospel, and this is uh, what I do for the youth group, is I will always say, repent and believe, because I think there is a lot of confusion around, uh, around the word belief. I think a lot of people have been told that because they believed in the facts of the gospel, they're saved, and I don't think that is true. Uh, uh, I had this, uh, this is a helpful uh, little chart from a man named Murray J. Harris. He, he wrote a book on John 3.16 recently, and I thought this was helpful. He talked about what it means to believe in rather than believing that. And so if you could pull that up for me. Um, believing that, it deals with facts, it, deals, it involves the mind, it involves recognition of the truth, can be momentary, alters nothing, and is a natural experience and it is, is a prerequisite, which means that you definitely have to believe that the gospel is real to be saved, right? You can't, for example, I don't know how this is even possible, to believe in another religion but somehow repent of your sin. It doesn't work that way. But it is a prerequisite, meaning uh, if you just believe that Jesus existed or you believe that Jesus died or even that you believe Jesus rose again, it does not save you, unfortunately. And I think when we live in Christian areas or when we live in a place where Christianity is free to be preached, I think this is the bigger problem is that uh, belief is understood but repentance is not. Whereas in John 3.16, it says believing in, and if you could turn for there, it says believing in deals with a person, involves the heart, it involves allegiance to Jesus, the truth, must be continuous, alters everything, is a rebirth from above and is a proper out- outcome. I really appreciated this explanation because it shows, again, this is what a true Christian looks like. And it's not perfection, obviously. We all backslide. We all have our struggles. But this is more what it looks like. John 1, 1 or 1 John in chapter 1, it says that if we say we have no sin, we are lying. So it's clearly not talking about perfection but we have to ask ourselves and we have to, to, to kind of think through people around us. Do we say we're saved, but it's not, it's not a repentant belief? It's just, it's just belief. It's like you believe in George Washington in the same way you believe in Jesus Christ. And I think that's uh, a sad reality of uh, some places uh, that I've been uh, these days. So it says, back to my explanation. Um, It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish and have eternal life. What does perishing mean? And this is something that I think a lot of Christians are a little bit shy to talk about, uh, especially uh, I think it's not fun to talk about hell with people. Uh, It's not fun. But, I mean, this verse pretty clearly contrasts it with, with eternal life. The word perishing can also be translated destruction or, or being destroyed, and um, it's pretty clearly talking about the fact that the natural road for every single person is hell. Right? Uh, John three eighteen kind of specify specifies this further for us, but I, w- I just want to point out for y'all that if we teach the gospel, we have to talk about hell. Um, There's other ways you can say it. You can say destruction. You can say uh, God's wrath upon the sinner. But it's really important to talk about. Um, I think, and this is kind of an interesting point that that certain Bible writers have have made to me. I think it's a really good point. Is, uh, if you've ever thought, have you ever heard uh, that our Old Testament God is really mean, but thank the Lord we live in the New Testament where Jesus loves you, right? Um, Unfortunately, that doesn't really line up with what Scripture says, actually. If you search the Old Testament and you find punishment, you'll find that punishment is pretty light compared to the New Testament. Did you know that the Old Testament barely talks about hell? Did you know that in the Old Testament, when there's punishment, it's generally speaking going to be uh, there's famine in the land or you're, you're captured by another country? It's pretty light compared to the New Testament. If you want to do a topical study on hell, you will find yourself very often in the red letters of the New Testament. Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else, right? And so there's where the the red letter Christianity kind of becomes a little mean, right? Um, Additionally, if you want to find the harshest picture of God's wrath, it's in the last book of the Bible. It's in Revelation And so I think we have to accept that just as God's love has been intensified in the New Testament, so is God's wrath. And I don't think it's honest for people to teach the gospel without talking about that the whole reason that Jesus had to die is because the natural road of people is perishing. Right? What is the opposite of this? It is eternal life. It says, those who believe in him shall have eternal life. This is such a cool topic because, first of all, there's fair evidence to say that eternal life begins when you are saved. It means that when you are saved, things change. And the word eternal life is talking about, it's, uh, the way to say it is, it's talking about your quantity of life and your quality of life as well, which I... Cannot imagine, and I think it's such a blessing, that through belief in Jesus, we not only live forever, but to some, living forever would be torture. Because you're like, I I don't like my current life. But it's promising quality of life that lasts forever. And not that when you're saved, um, it it instantly starts, right? Sometimes when people are saved, uh, life actually becomes harder because you have to put off sin and you lose friendships. But it's saying that the quality of life, in some sense, starts at conversion, and it lasts forever. That's such a blessing. If you stop to think, wow, through the death of Jesus Christ, I somehow, in some seemingly unfair way, have access to the type of quality of life that God lives being a sinner. And it goes on forever, right? So... Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit real quick about gospel explanation. How you use this verse to explain the gospel uh, to someone. There's a, a, a Bible scholar named Wayne Grudem. And he, I really appreciate him because he, he writes in a way that, you know, dumb people like me can understand it, right? And he, he writes four elements of gospel presentation. He writes one, you have to say that all people have sinned. Two, you have to say that our penalty of sin is death. I would agree with that. Third, you have to say that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for sins and he rose again. And then fourth, you have to uh, call for an invitation of belief and, and repentance, right? And I think John 3.16, if you look at it for me, it does a great job of that. It directly addresses three out of the four elements. It doesn't really, if you, if you look at it, it doesn't really cover that we are sinners. But in in many ways, John 3 has already said you need to be born again, that nothing of your own is helpful at all. And so I think that in many ways is is a more clear, uh, is a very clear explanation of sin. And it does explain the other three elements. It explains that we're naturally headed towards perishing and it understates perishing. It doesn't overstate it. It says this is eternal destruction. And it states that through God, through his love, giving his only begotten son, some can have eternal life. That is point three. That is the gospel. That is that because Jesus died, the penalty for sin is paid. And then it calls for belief in, as you see here, rather than belief that. It doesn't say, it doesn't have, it's not trying to convince you of the facts of the gospel. It's trying to say, we need more than that. We need a repentant belief We need belief in the Son of God. And so as we close for today, I just have a few closing questions for you. The first question, the most important one, is are you a true believer in Jesus Christ? Or are you the type of person who maybe, like so many, has bought into the lie of belief of Jesus rather than belief in Jesus? I think this is such an important question. To ask ourselves when we live in a place where 90% of people would say, I'm a Christian. We have to ask ourselves this question. Secondly, uh, is there anyone in your life that you need to share the gospel with, or maybe you need to clarify the gospel with? And do you understand that some are headed, and most are headed for eternal destruction, but yet eternal life is available? And the third question I have for you today is Are you in awe? of the love of God for a world that hates Him. As Christians, we need to be walking around confused, in awe of the fact that a holy God, a perfect God, would love so great, give the ultimate sacrifice for a world that hated Him so much. Let's bow our heads and let's uh, close. Let's pray and thank the Lord for His great love for this world. Dear Lord, uh, I thank you for giving us John 3 that we might have clarity about what the gospel is, Lord. About the fact that you love the world so much that you would send your son, Lord, to pay for the sin of the world, Lord, so that whoever might believe in your son would be saved Lord, I pray that we would be honest, honest preachers of the gospel, Lord, um, to a world that primarily does not know you, Lord. I pray that we would preach boldly, and I, um, I pray for salvation for those in our lives who do not believe or maybe uh, think they believe, but it's not uh, a belief of repentance, Lord. Um, I pray for this church uh, that we would grow to know your gospel more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.